Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a show that's asking whether the kids are all right. What is going on with behaviour in our schools? Are we facing a crisis of control? And if so, who is to blame? It's Lord of the Flies out there, so settle in with me and with Tom for a discussion on the end of innocence, the darkness of men's hearts and taming the beast. Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome everybody, we made it to the weekend and I could not be more excited as today I'll be talking to Tom Bennett, founder of Research Ed and DFE advisor on behaviour, behaviour czar as he is better known. For the uninitiated, Research Ed is a grassroots organisation that raises research literacy in education and campaigns for better evidence awareness worldwide. In 2015, Tom was appointed as government advisor on behaviour in schools, and he also chairs the Mental Health in Schools panel. He's written several books, but I'm keen to focus on his most recent work, Running the Room, which I have right next to me here. And if you look at the praise for sections, um, well, it reads like a who's who of uh, <laughs> who you'd like to be praised by if you wrote a book in the field of education but if I just take a couple of examples Sam Strickland head teacher says running the room offers the training we deserved but did not receive which I think is something that I want to be asking Tom about uh, today Barry Smith head teacher said practical sensible step by step very thorough there's a lot more to this book than first meets the eye read it carefully read it again keep coming back to it, apply it, you won't regret it. Certainly I've done that, I've been rereading it um, over the last few days in preparation for speaking to Tom and when I first read it I found it extremely powerful and certainly my school is using it uh, as a reference tool. Um, from the start of uh, sort of halfway through last year and certainly this year, um, really really fantastic. Um, that we're using it. Before I interview Tom, whom I hope is calling in as we speak, and before we get serious about the topic of behaviour in UK schools, I do think it's important for us to remind ourselves that despairing of the youth of today is not a new dynamic. We've always done it, indeed, and there are examples going back generations. I found a fantastic article published by the BBC uh, by Amanda Ruggieri entitled, People have always whinged about youngsters, here's proof. She makes the point that throughout the decades, the criticisms levelled at each younger generation by the older have been remarkably consistent. In other words, it seems to be a thing to be disdainful of the young. So here are some fantastic examples. 
Many young people are so pampered nowadays that they have forgotten that there was such a thing as walking. That's from Scottish Rights of Way, More Young People Should Use Them, from the Falkirk Herald in 1951. We can go back further than that. How about this one? In youth clubs, there were young people who would not take part in boxing, wrestling or similar exercises which did not appeal to them. The tough guy of the films made some appeal, but when it came to something that led to physical strain or risk, they would not take it. That's from Young People Who Spend Too Much, from the Dundee Evening Telegraph in 1945. Parents themselves were often the cause of many difficulties. They frequently failed in their obvious duty to teach self-control and discipline in their own children, says an article called Problems of Young People in the Leeds Mercury in 1938. The chairman, alluding to the problems of young people and their command of English, said his experience was that many did not seem able to express or convey to other people what they meant. They could not put their meaning into words and found the same difficulty when it came to writing. That's from Failings of Modern Young People. What a, what a title to give an article. Failings of Modern Young People from the Gloucester Citizen, 1936. That's the year my mother was born. We defy anyone who goes about with his eyes open to deny that there is, as never before, an attitude on the part of young folk which is best described as grossly thoughtless, rude and utterly selfish. And that's from an article called The Conduct of Young People in the Hull Daily Mail, 1925. <laughs> so this article that I found published by the BBC was just amazing to really confirm to us that any sort of sense of moral panic that we might have about young people, youngsters of today, well, everyone has always felt like that. Everyone has always felt that young people are rude and out of control. Uh, lazy and feckless seems to come out of a lot of those quotes as well. So wanted to get get that in right from the beginning that I am fully aware of all of this and I'm not suggesting for one moment uh, that kids these days are any different from how they've ever been. I do suspect, however, that we, the adults, have changed. I wonder whether we've lost confidence, not only in our ability to stand in authority, but in our right to do so. Along with the laudable and long-awaited advent of children being seen and heard, it's like we've started to be afraid of the control we can exert over them. We're frightened of our own authority. With authority comes responsibility, and it's scary up here. So perhaps as a result of well-meant, loving, liberal principles, combined with some good old-fashioned feelings of personal inadequacy, we've somehow got to the point where poor behaviour can be accepted as a norm. It is tolerated, either some, most or all of the time in UK schools. 
tolerated by us as their teachers. We just shrug and consider it a part of the job. But more than enough from me, hoping that we will soon be hearing from Tom. So back to the accolades uh, about this uh, book. So it, uh, Rachel D'Souza is named as CEO at Inspiration Trust. Isn't she also the Children's Commissioner? Pretty sure she is. Maybe she wasn't when this was published. Um, she says, a nuanced and comprehensive approach to behaviour that provides practical guidance while exploring the complex fields of psychology and motivation. The book is vital reading for everyone facing the challenge of controlling a classroom. Even more importantly, the methods in this book will help children develop and find a purpose as individuals. So do I have Tom in the studio? Are you there, Tom? I may well be. Can you hear me? Oh, yes, I can, loud and clear. You're Thank not God stuck in Chiswick Roundabout, which is, which is great news. Is, is that you? a common occurrence? Or no, I'm absolutely well. <laughs> I've, just, I've literally just moved house. Yes. Uh, I'm in my new home right now, and I'm watching my children gamble about freely and gaily in the garden. So you've got 99% of my undivided attention. <laughs> Very impressive. <laughs> I can't believe you agreed to this when you just moved house. That's mad. no, indeed I can't. Don't, don't make, don't make me reconsider, Emma. <laughs> oh well, I've just been reading out some of the uh, praise for your your latest book uh, on the show. Um, and was that a very, short, a very short segment? I imagine uh, it, it was a very lengthy one, as you well know. <laughs> um, and running the room, I. For me, it's not only a really powerful manual, it's without a doubt one of the most honest books about behaviour management I've, I've ever read. So the opening chapter in which you chart your early failings as a new teacher, yeah. actually makes for quite difficult reading. Oh, is it? Oh, well, I mean, I don't, I don't, want, to upset, <laughs> I don't want to upset anybody. I just, I just think that people usually enjoy... Um, you know, reading other people's pain, and and <laughs> and usually get a kick out of that. Like when we try, when we slow down to watch an accident. Um, I just I thought it was terribly important that um, teachers out there realise, if they didn't already, because I, I don't want to patronise them, that, that that you know teaching is an incredibly difficult job, mm. and it's and, it, and it's quite emotionally draining. And if you've been trained pretty badly, you know, don't be surprised if 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 you walk into it like a car crash. Um, and, and that it's not necessarily your fault. I think there's a big problem in education just now and teaching in general. And this is something that speaks about professionalism. People often talk about teaching as a profession. And, you know, and I, I sometimes get pelters for this, but I think it's true. I don't think we're a profession yet. I don't think we've got a commonly agreed body of, you know, agreed kind of academic or skills-based knowledge. I don't think we've got a professional set of ethical standards which we can all cohere with. And so on. I think I think because we're not trained necessarily particularly well, in some circumstances, obviously there's pockets of greatness, then a lot of teachers enter the profession in what a state, in a state of what I call non-competence rather than incompetence. I mean, incompetence means when you're just bad at something. But non-competence is when you haven't been shown how to do something. And, you know, if, if you're a teacher and you walk into a classroom and nobody has shown you how to de-escalate conflict, nobody has shown you how to talk to somebody who's upset how to, or, how to, or how to speak, assertively but kindly to people or how to redirect people or how to direct people's behavior for their own good for their own flourishing then you are non-competent mm. 
at the job you've been asked to do, and it's not your fault. And I think, to be honest, that, that's part of the scandal. So, I mean, I can look back upon my younger self as a teacher, and I mean, I'm, I'm, the hard, I'm my own hardest judge, but I can, I can be fairly kind to myself and think, you know, it wasn't all your fault. You were being asked to do something that you didn't know how to do. Yes, because certainly you take you do take quite a swipe at, at, at teacher training. You you say it's a well meant but woefully undercooked half preparation. Did I say that, Emma? That, did, sounds, yeah. that sounds terribly cruel and brutal. <laughs> um, no, listen. You know, as as Shakespeare writes, you know, be kent unmannerly when Lear is mad. Um, I think it's important to be to be straightforward yeah. when things need to change, and I think it's important to be. Um, you know, to, to, to be passionate but kind about things that you know need to change. Um, I think that there are some fantastic teacher training institutions. I think there are some amazing teacher trainers. I think that, and some of it's going in HE and some of it's going on in school-based routes. You know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it would be pointlessly cruel to say, oh, teacher training is bad. It's not, you know, it's, it's just variegated, but that's not good enough. Um, and I think that particularly, I mean, I could talk about lots and lots of contexts, but particularly when it comes to behavior, when we get this wrong, kids get punched in the face. Yeah. You know, when we, when we are not, when we're not trained enough to do this, kids go home weeping and cut themselves and suffer abuse and bullying and neglect and the trauma of, of, of being brutalized at an institutional level. And you know, and that's why it matters because children's safety matters, and their well-being matters, and their flourishing matters. So this is no small thing, and that's what that's what puts you know bromide in my coffee in the morning. That's what gets me out of bed to talk about this stuff all the time because we're still not there yet. And there's lot, and again, there's lots of people doing the Lord's work here, and I think sometimes um, some people in, in teacher training get a wee bit upset when I mention this because they think. I'm tiring everybody with you know equally with the same brush. I'm, sorry, I'm not. I'm pointing out there are problems, and there's you know, and that's not just that's not just something that that, that should be done. It's something that must be done. Mm. Well, I, I think one of the things that very much comes across in in your book, if people read it with an open mind, is the humanity. So you're very much focused on the humanity and the dignity of young people, mm. but also the humanity and the dignity of teachers and I think I've read very few books on behavior that lift the burden of blame on teachers' <laughs> shoulders in the same way that yours yours does. You uh, know, something that stuck in my mind, you said um, if they tell you to get stuffed, it's rarely because your starter activity wasn't engaging enough. I mean thank you. Because I've been told that is the case in the past. Absolutely. You know, I mean there's this there's this <laughs> sorry. That was makes me chuckle. Um, <laughs> there's nothing can you say there's nothing worse than laughing at your own jokes. Isn't that terrible? Right. Anyway, that's why I'm going to hell. The, um, <laughs> because, because the behavior debate is still quite immature, the discourse around behavior is still quite, um, still quite thin, I think, that a lot of people end up saying some really daft things uh, with very little experience of what they're talking about. So yes. you know, only in education would somebody who's never managed a challenging class tell you how to manage a challenging class. You know, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd. It as... as, as um, uh, I don't know if you can swear on, teach, on, on, on this channel, but I'll try not to. But it's a bit like Christopher Hitchens' famous quote about, um, it's like asking a, a Catholic priest to tell you how to shag. Um, <laughs> forgive me. And forgive all Catholic priests out there. And, and, and may God have mercy on my soul. He didn't say shag, obviously. Yes. Um, you know, and that's where we are with teaching. So you get these kind of really weird aphorisms coined by perfectly well-meaning people who are essentially bulls in a china shop in terms of their utility. 
And they'll say things like, you know, if they tell you to get stuffed, you know, they're, they're trying to tell you something. Mm. Yeah. What's it? All, all bad behavior is, is communication. Okay. Sorry, one second. <laughs> communication. My, my children just wanted to try and tell me something. <laughs> well, how, how, how appropriate. <laughs> Oh, I think someone's muted himself. We have a family emergency going on. Well, I mean, bless him. He's just made. He must be absolutely crazy. Um, but yeah, absolutely. What he was thinking about. I'm um, sorry. Um, I, this I, idea I, I do That's apologize. Right, don't worry, don't worry. My children just found a pheasant in a bush, and they had to run and tell me. Uh, so obviously, I sent them to the exclusion room. Um, I right, would hope so. So, <laughs> so hey, anyway, bigger pardon. So what was we say is you get people coming along with these really meaningless things. And they'll say things like, you know, behaviors, all behaviors, communication. And I, I kind of get what they mean. Mm. The problem is if a kid tells you to get stuffed, I mean, sometimes the clue is in the words. They're telling you to get stuffed. That's what they're trying to communicate. Mm. And, you know, and, 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 and they're expressing something about their own anger. And, you know, and it might not be because they've got some kind of buried, uh, mysterious, unmet needs going on within them. And it might be that there is. Yes. But it may seem education nine times out of ten. It's just because the kid's been rude. Or they're yes. looking for a laugh, or they're trying to amuse themselves or amuse their friend, you know. And I, I think this idea of you, know, oh, but what are they really saying? I think, <laughs> I, th I, th I think it really, really brutalizes teachers because, of course, then the teacher goes home and thinks, you know, what did I do wrong to make that kid tell me to f off, mm -hmm. you know? And 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 it's just, <laughs> you know, it's it's complete victim blaming to do so, and you know, and and, and if you know if somebody punched you in the teeth in the middle of the street, you wouldn't think, oh, you know, what did I do wrong? <laughs> you know, you I mean, yeah, you might well say, oh, I wonder how that person got to the situation. I wonder what their tragic backstory is to the point where they want to punch strangers in the teeth. I mean, that's that's not a wrong thing to think and say. But if you're the victim of that, you know, it perhaps might not be the kindest and wisest thing to say, you know, what did you do to make them punch in the teeth? <laughs> that's my point. Yeah. And also much of your approach is based on the principle that behavior is a curriculum that children need to be taught yes. how to behave. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, and, and again, you know, I'd, I'd like to start off with my, my, my axioms, as any good philosopher should, which is that if, um, you know, we're not born knowing how to behave. We're not born knowing how to brush our teeth or comb our hair or behave in a classroom. And so it stands to reason that if it's not, you know, some kind of intuitive knowledge buried deep within us, as like, you know, like the rationalists would have said, um, then it's learned, it's empirically learned through our experiences and by you know, instruction by other people. And so mm -hmm. people, who, children who come to school and they're punctual, for example, have been taught to be punctual yeah. by probably equally punctual parents or guardians or whomever or circumstances. And, and so when they come to your lessons on time, you go, what a good kid. They've been taught to be like that because children are the products of the environment. Mm -hmm. and, and, and children who are not punctual have been allowed to be late or lazy or whatever by their own environment. They're not blaming anyone. It's just the way it is. We, we learn from our environments. And so if behavior is taught, then it, we can teach it. Yeah. And, and often we need to, because a lot of the kids that, we, uh, that, that come into our care are you know, far from optimal in terms of their social skills. And so again, it's, it's where I like to talk about non-competence rather than incompetence. There's plenty of children who come to school non-competent in the types of behaviors that make them successful at school. Yes. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I mean, I'll be very open about the fact that I very much changed my mind over the last few years about many of these issues. And I very much come to and I think that's partly my background. I started my career in a 
very liberal grammar school where yeah. lots of the free and liberal principles worked beautifully most of the time. Um, and it was very easy then to to hang on to them. And it was yeah. only when I moved out of that environment and also started to read more about other t- you know, tougher environments where I've never worked that I thought, okay, I'm not sure this is actually working uh, in, in other places. And, 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 and I think what surprises me most about the extreme what one might call the extreme liberal view, which is all behaviour is communication, mm. these children need like, all the rest of it. It's yeah. they they acknowledge the 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 inadequacy of, for example, the the home life of some of these students, and yet they don't want to give them the support they need to step out of it. And I think that's what puzzles me most. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. Absolutely. And again, I think it's why just this one simple understanding that behaviour is learned. Mm. can can revolutionise the way we approach good behaviour, misbehaviour, teacher training, teacher support, CPD. It, it, it just it, it needs to inform all of these things because it, it ties them all together. I mean, if you, as I say in my book, if you are fortunate enough to go to a school where you teach nothing but the sons and daughters of Swiss diplomats, yeah. you know, then uh, chances are you'll say to them, right, class, let's begin. And they'll probably do it. Yes. You know, a bit because they've been, because that cohort will probably, again, demographically across the cohort, probably have been socialised to the extent where they, where they, from a value point of view, they appreciate education, they probably appreciate adult authority, they probably understand how to behave within institutional settings, they understand manner, you know, and so on, and they've probably got lots of background knowledge and literacy and numeracy and gateway skills that allow them to access the content and the experience of being in a classroom. Yes. You know, and, that's, and that's certainly not to say, oh, you know, rich people behave well and poor people behave badly. I mean, socioeconomic factors are factors in mm. risks associated with misbehaviour, and that's a much, much better way to put it. Um, but if you, but if you're fortunate enough to teach, you know, for instance, in a really lovely leafy grammar school or an independent school in the middle of the countryside or something like that, you know, don't be surprised if your children are a bit more school ready, both socially yeah. and academically. And then, what you mustn't do—I mean, I, I sometimes get this. Emma, I go to schools in the middle of nowhere where the behaviour is great. And this school says, we are great at behaviour. Mm. And I'm kind of saying, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. It's a bit like living in a sunny country and saying, you know, we, we're great at being warm. And, you know, it's, it's just <laughs> something that happens because you're there, because yes. of the demographic that you've that you, that, that you, that you got. And incidentally, I celebrate those, those demographics. Good. I'm glad these children have got these, you know, these advantages. Uh, I'd like to see more children having them. And I think that, that um, when you see teachers going from behaviourally easier environments into behaviourally more challenging environments, we frequently find that uh, they struggle because they don't have the teaching skills in order to, to cope and survive and thrive and flourish in, in, in that the new type of environment. Mm. You, in your book, you, you explore conformity and groupthink in quite a lot of detail. Do you think that the liberal fear of that is what causes some people to have such a visceral reaction against disciplining in schools, that fear of, of discipline and control? Um, I think there's lots of reasons why people don't... So well, here's, here's the thing, right? I mean, we could unpick this all day. Discipline means lots of things to lots of people, and it's got loads of connotations pointing in different ways, like the hands of the scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, discipline to some people means the kind of self-discipline you need to be excellent at something. So you would say, for instance, that, you know, Zola Bud, God, I, that was the most contemporary athlete I could think of, Zola Bud, that really dated Yeah, me. that really dates you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
I don't know, Daley Thompson, oh God, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm 50. Right, okay, so, um, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> you, know, you need that kind of discipline to be good at an athlete, you know, get up in the morning and do your thing. And that's a good thing, mm. right? And then there's a sense of discipline as in to punish. And, and it's one of the, the reasons why I, um, I have discussions with the DFE and I try to persuade them to, to use, either, either use the former definition or not use the word at all. Because basically, it just it confuses and upsets people. So, you know, do people want to discipline children? I talk about consequences. I think it's a much better way to talk about it. I yes. think that um, I think that um, I liken this to what Dylan William and others have talked about when they mention formative assessment. That one of the best, most high impact and low cost interventions you can make to improve a child's learning is to give them high quality feedback hmm. after the event. Of the, of the teaching experience. And th that sounds obvious, but I go to lots of lessons where, where teachers just teach something and then move on and then teach something and move on. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this, so you, what you do is you give them high quality feedback on how to improve and what they did wrong and how to get better. And the same thing applies to behavior. That's what a consequence is. After the event, you immerse them in high quality feedback about what they did wrong and how to do better. Now, for many children, that feedback will be pastoral or it'll be conversational or interpersonal. You know, you'll, you'll remind them to do the right thing or you'll say, did you know what you should be doing just now? Or you'll say, do you want me to tell you again how to, you know, what you need to do in the canteen or something like that, Yeah. you know? Or, or, it, might be, um, or it might be some kind of accommodation. Maybe the behavior does indicate some kind of a special educational need which needs to be accommodated. Or, or if the behavior is deliberate and willful and the kids know how not to do it and have chosen to do it, then it might be that the consequence, the feedback, might well be a mild deterrent, which might be a sanction of some kind. Or it might be a reward. Yeah. You know, and, that, and that's, that's the beauty of it. Again, when you understand behavior, not as communication, but more as, as a curriculum, then it gives you a much better understanding of what you actually need to do next. And this is why I get really upset when um, schools or even local authorities say things like, Oh, we shouldn't have, you know, we, we have no exclusion policies, you know, because all that they're doing is, is, is farming all the problems with that back into, back into the classroom. They're not solving it. Obviously, exclusions are, you know, something to be done as, as only as a last resort. And I've got to emphasize that. Mm -hmm. but, um, but, you know, this, this idea that we shouldn't have, you know, that there should be consequences of your actions or that these consequences should never be punitive um, is it, it, absurd. It's not that you drive behavior management through sanctions alone. In fact, I think sanctions should be like 10% of your system. The point is, is that using consequences should be about a third of your entire behavior management process. And of that, sanctions should be, you know, a small part. But it needs to be there. You can't, you can't remove it, which is why, for instance, I, I disagree very, very strongly with schools that move entirely to restorative practices because they are um, they're trying to do a good thing, but, but they're actually doing a, doing a bad thing. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you actually because towards the end of your your book you do talk about restorative approaches. And I, I, I may have actually, mentioned it. Yeah, well, I was actually slightly surprised how that you weren't entirely negative. <laughs> my, uh, my my personal experience of restorative is is like you say when you entirely move to that system, and I yeah. found it disastrous, um, and have been in a at least one very uncomfortable meeting that I ended up walking out of because I just felt. The situation was set up for the student to have another go at me. Um, so, how how can restorative approaches be used productively? Um, I mean, to be honest, it's restorative approaches are a, are a tool, and like any tool, they have a niche. 
you know, like any tool, they have a use. A spanner has a use, and a screwdriver has a use. But you wouldn't build a wall with a spanner. Um, <laughs> and, and unfortunately, see, I'm, I'm all about the metaphors, Emma. <laughs> and um, and unfortunately, what you get is people trying to build walls with a spanner when it comes to the sort of approaches. And yeah. I think of a lot of it's because they don't like using sanctions, and they think, oh, it makes me feel mean. I mean, congratulations, that makes you a human being. Nobody should like using sanctions, but we don't use them because we like them, you know? And in the, the, same, <laughs> the same way that a surgeon doesn't, you know, break the skin to make a stitch because he likes breaking the skin, he wants to make a stitch to heal, you know? And I, and I think that's something that we need to think about very, very carefully and closely about how we use restorative processes. So we have to remember that restorative processes came out of the penal system. That's where they emerged. Yes. And most, yeah. most of the data we have on it comes from prisons and the judicial system. And it's basically an acknowledgement that if you just keep adding years and years and years onto someone's sentence, that perhaps it might not be deterring them very much anymore. Um, that, you know, is there anything else we can do to try to prevent crime in the first place? That's a noble aim. Mm. The problem is, as with, as with many noble aims, you know, the road to hell is, is paved with good intentions. And this sort of process is designed to be a conversational pastoral and therapeutic process whereby... Children are made to confront the impact of their actions, where children are meant to consider the impact it's had on themselves and their community, and to think how they can repair and restore the damage that's been done to the community. I mean, there's lots of lovely sentiments in that. Unfortunately, many people build a castle of candy floss out of that, and then, and, and, and then much harm is caused by it. For example, restorative processes tend to work really well when there's a relationship to restore. I mean, the, 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 the clue's in the word. Mm. The clue's yeah. in the word. So, you know, so for instance, if you've got someone who's been bullied um, and victimized and harassed and abused horribly by, um, by a bully, then, you know, getting them together in a room to discuss with their bully, you know, the impact they had on them is, is, is a harrowing experience for some people. Yeah. You know, can, I mean, can you imagine being sexually abused by somebody and saying, right, now we're going to sit in the room with your abuser and we're going to yeah. thrash it out. You know, I mean, seriously, seriously, you know, give your head a wobble if you're thinking that kind of thing. If two friends have fallen out and have had a fight, that's a different matter. That, yes. That's a useful thing to do, you know. Um, and the idea that, that, um, that all children respond to equally is, again, a farcical. Um, in order to benefit from a restorative approach, you've got to be capable of understanding the impact of your actions and reconsidering through guidance you know, what you could do to improve next time and also to take responsibility for it. <laughs> I've got a newsflash for you. There's plenty of kids who understand perfectly well the impact of their actions and why they did something and they wanted to. So if you say to a child, you know, you punch that person in the face, do you understand the impact that had? <laughs> and speaking like that, you know, and if the child's been honest, they'll say, yep, I understand. I wanted to punch them in the face. You know, good. I'm, I, I wanted them to be unhappy. You know, we, we mustn't think that children are deep down natural saints or natural demons. They're just people like you and I. And the idea that we can eventually always persuade children to do the right thing by conversational processes implies that goodness is a rational process. You know, and, and, and I just and sadly I just don't think that it is. I think that I think that children sometimes want to do the wrong thing. Or what we call the wrong thing, but they see it as the right thing. This is the problem with ethics. It's uh, it's it's very hard to be absolutist about these things. Um so there's lots and lots of problems with the restorative process. Uh, and it also re requires that children are capable of understanding the impact of their actions. Um, some children are very, very bad at understanding consequences of actions and long-term impact and so on. So it's useful for some kids. And I would certainly say that after any sanction you give to a student, you must have what I call a threshold conversation. And the threshold conversation is where the teacher redefines the narrative. Mm 
and says to the student, look, this is what you did wrong. I'm telling you what you did wrong. Do you understand? And sometimes they'll say, yeah, I do, because sometimes children are impulsive and sometimes they regret their mistakes. And sometimes in that situation, you can say to the student, look, this is what happened, but I know you can do better because I believe in you and I want you to do well. And I want you in my classroom. I don't want you out of my classroom. I want you in my classroom. Mm. I want you to do better. Here's how you can do better. And that's very much like assessment for learning. There's your feedback. But that shouldn't replace the deterrent effect of the sanction because you need that deterrent effect for people to realize there are boundaries because boundaries without sanctions are meaningless, sadly, to about 5% of students. Mm. And I think, as you say, it's that important. I think it's really important to brand it as a th- as what you call a threshold conversation, because then that's the teacher drawing the line, isn't it? So yeah. you're not you're not re-entering my my room until we agree certain things. And I think that's certainly in in my experience the the mistake that that was made in my case. There was lots of well, what you know what can Dr. Williams do differently? I'm like, whoa, hang on, <laughs> hang on a second. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I'm not having that, yeah. uh, and, I, and I didn't have it. Um, so you, in the early part of your book, you explore, and again, I'm afraid this really resonated with me in the, the early training I had, mm. you explore the fact that it's very easy as a teacher to get drawn in by really quite low expectations. So you said, I, I learned with some kids the easiest way to in- avoid their endless meltdowns was to placate and contain them. Ignore their low output, expect little and get it. I assumed this was all you could expect. And of course, it's so much easier to do that in some ways, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, mean, change is hard and excellence is hard. And Mm. making a difference to other people is hard. Persuading people is hard. And teaching is hard. All these things are hard. Yeah. (laughs) And I I remember years ago uh, when I was running a nightclub and I had some staff that were just hanging by the edge of the bar having cigarettes. And the guy that owned the nightclub came by and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm having a cigarette. And he said, find them something to do. And I said, I don't think there's anything for them to do. And he said, if you pay them five pounds an hour, this is how long ago it was. Um, if you pay them five pounds an hour to smoke cigarettes, then they'll smoke cigarettes for five pounds an hour. If you ask them to wipe tables and say hello to the customers, they'll do that for five pounds an hour. And I, and I remember thinking, yeah, actually, the, that, that was my expectation that was low, which was making their expectations low because I was letting them get away with it. And there's that classic Doug Lamov line, isn't there? You know, what you permit, you promote. Yeah. You know, or my slightly more low-budget version is what you accept becomes acceptable. Yeah. I'm basically, I'm basically the Cliff Richard to his Elvis Presley. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm very much who you get when you can't get Doug Lamov. But that's okay. <laughs> I'm just glad he's over there most of the time. So so your own, your own kind of standards become the standards of the classroom to some extent. And if you, and if you find it too hard to struggle against the low standards that are there, then sometimes it is easier just to kind of give up and say, well, stuff it. You know, I don't get paid any more if, mm. you know, if, if, if I put in that, this, 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 this uh, debilitating burden of emotional energy into the situation. Um, and also nobody seems to be commenting or caring whether I do or not. And, you, you know, you end up feeling like, it's a bit like, you know, like a, a supply teacher, but in a, long, in a long-term situation where you're with the same kids day in, day out, and you struggle with them so much, you think, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let the ones learn who want to learn and I'll just try to keep a lid on the ones that don't, yeah. which is which is great if you're a fan of the Matthew effect, you know, which is which is great if you're a fan of the, the disadvantage gap and you, want, and you want, you know, poor kids to remain poor and advantaged kids to remain advantaged. But, but if you've got any interest whatsoever in addressing any of those things, then sadly, it's your job to walk towards the fire. 
it's your job to walk towards the difficult stuff and say, right, you know, this needs to be fixed. This needs to be solved. These kids need help. They need support. They need me. They need a grown-up. They need a grown-ass grown adult in that room to be the adult in that room and to remind them that they can't do as they please. And that maybe you believe in them more than they believe in themselves. But you certainly yeah. care about their well-being in the future more than they appear to be caring about themselves. But then they're kids. A lot of kids can't perceive their, their well-being beyond the instant or that day or that week. They don't have long-term plans. Uh, they haven't been habituated into those types of processes and expectations. So to some extent, you're there to rock their world and to basically, you know, build not a, not a cage, but a climbing frame for them to become better than they could ever have imagined themselves. Yeah, and it's those it's those expectations and the refusal to to let them drop that is the most important for those disaffected students. Well, absolutely. You know, the thing is, I mean, I've gone to I've had the I mean, I've had the privilege of going to loads of schools now. Um, I'm like a kind of Avon salesperson, and I just knock on lots of doors and go to schools. And um, I feel like Gandalf at times, wandering the country. And <laughs> I've been to loads and loads of really good people referral units and alternative provision and uh, special schools and behavioural schools and, you know, schools for children who are just so damaged and, and, and broken by their life experiences that it would make me weep. And the best versions of these institutions I go to, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not prisons. They're, they're mm. fantastic places, and they're, but they're driven by structure and purpose and they really expect great things for their kids. What they don't do is say to them, you know, we, we expect nothing from you because nobody has before. These are the institutions where you, go, where you go to and the kids walk into a wall of compassion, but that compassion comes with expectations. And the expectations yeah. um, are things like, you know, we know you can do better. We know you can learn. We believe in you. We don't think you're stupid. You know, we, we think you've had some, some tough luck and made, maybe made some bad choices. That's where we are just now. But, you know, but, but, but let's start again. You can be better. And it's wonderful. And I, and I take my hat off to these legends that work in these environments. I mean, some of these places aren't very good, and some of them are amazing. And the amazing ones are just wonderful places to be. Um, and they're safe, and they're structured, and they're calm. And sometimes kids struggle, and sometimes they can't cope, and sometimes they do have meltdowns and breakdowns and so on. But the staff are there to help them pick it up again. And I salute them massively. Yeah. But again, I mean, I asked you earlier about groupthink and whether you felt that was yeah. people's dis disquiet, perhaps with with um, authoritative structures. Um, I, I think people often confuse authority with authoritarianism. I think that's that's part of the problem. But why, why is it that so many people are still finding objections to a school like Michaela? You know, when I remember when it opened up, I thought, oh, interesting. And then uh, and uh, this view was, oh, we'll, we'll wait and see the results, won't yeah, we? Yeah. And then they, they gave us the results. And people <laughs> yeah. still weren't happy. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, oh, well, it's not, that's where people, oh, it's not about the results. It's, it's an exams factory. Yeah. It's a sausage machine. Right, yeah. Here's, a, yeah, here's the deal. You know, Michaela were never going to persuade these people. But you know, you know what? Stuff them. Because quite frankly, no, seriously, seriously. Because some people don't want to be convinced. And if you don't want to be convinced, then, you know, there's very little point wasting your time on people like that. I'd much rather go and approach people who are open-minded and broad-minded enough to think maybe we do want children to do well, particularly children from less advantaged backgrounds. That's that, that's that's very much what you know rocks my boat and gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, I've been to Michaela about half a dozen times. Now listen, it's not for everyone. I'm not saying every school should be Michaela. You know, every school should be the best version of itself. But Michaela is very, very good at being itself. And I'll tell you what, it's kids there are safe. The kids yeah. there learn to an extraordinary level. 
And I'm not, I mean, I'm not joking. No kid gets left behind. And in particular, the ones that benefit most, as was mentioned by Ofsted, are the children with SEND. Mm. Now, you know, so put that in your pipe and smoke it. Critics of schools like that. It's the children from the least advantaged backgrounds that benefit from the most structured environments, driven by compassion. And here's the weird thing. I've sat down with the kids many, many times at Michaela, and every time I say to them, do you like it here? Now, these are just random kids, um, you know, never picked for me, just children to speak to. And every child, with sincerity, gushes with enthusiasm about how much they like being at the school. And I say to them, why? And they say things like, we feel safe here, the school looks after us, we learn loads, and it prepares us for life. You know, that, that's their quotes. Mm-hmm. And I just think, <laughs> that's it. That's, that's what you're looking I mean, if you're not looking for that from school, then, <laughs> then I've got nothing left in my suitcase to offer you. Because, <laughs> because if you don't want kids to be in a calm environment, which is safe, where there's, where there's you know, very, very little bullying or victimization or any of that kind of stuff going on, which you see in most other schools, where they're learning like, with, the, with the ferocity of a nuclear furnace, and they love it, and they're, and they're learning loads of really great social skills as well, like assertiveness and, you know, shake somebody's hand and speak to somebody for the first time and so on, then, then I don't know what you think school is for. I really don't. And mm-hmm. most of the critics of Michaela have never been there. You know, I thought, sorry, sorry, this sounds like me, uh, a one-man Michaela defending um, organisation. It's, it's not. The thing is, there's thousands of great schools up and down the country. Thousands yeah. and thousands and thousands, all doing the Lord's work, all moving mountains, all making miracles happen. And, and you know, and, we, and I applaud them as well. Michaela is just a very, very prominent one that does very, very well, but very well it does indeed. And I think that the reason why many people get upset and, and angry and get onto Twitter and, and do lots of capital letters about it is is, is purely ideology. Well, you know, that, yeah, this is it. Purely. I think it matters more to some people to defend their ideology than to raise kids out of poverty and I think well absolutely uh, yeah I think honestly that's a line I'm going to steal and claim as my own um <laughs> I mean I think it's Rob Henderson who wrote about luxury beliefs and I think it's such a great concept and I think yeah. I see it a lot in education and it's basically things you can only believe if you're incredibly privileged yes things you can only believe if you yourself have never experienced challenging environments like you know high challenge schools and so on so for instance if you are fortunate enough to have gone through public school or the grammar school system. And again, I'm not knocking people that do, but if you're fortunate to have gone through that and you've been through really, really civil environments where the teachers basically didn't have to deal with too much uh, indiscipline. Um, and if you only ever hung out with people who are like you, then it's incredibly easy to think that all that a teacher needs to do is ask children nicely to behave and they will. And I call that, and I call that a luxury belief yeah. because not only is an indication that you've, you've been through incredibly privileged circumstances yourself. But it's also kind of a, it's kind of a status symbol as well because it indicates to other people like you, this is the type of person I am. So I think there's a lot of tribalism involved in this. Yes. And I think it's a, it's a really useful way of indicating to people that, you know, I too have had a privileged circumstance and privileged lifestyle. I too have never taught a challenging class. Come sit with me and we will, di- and we will discuss our privilege together. And, you know, and to be honest, that's, that's a very human thing. People flock together to people a bit like them. But it's certainly not what I would call a rational basis to create or justify a behavioural policy, either at a school level or a national level. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it, what's fascinating about, about some of these people is not only do they question, 
you know, a school like Nakela or a school with, you know, extremely clear disciplinary, no, no, not disciplinary uh, consequences, all of that. Um, not only do they seem to object to that, but some of them seem to object to um, traditional... <laughs> I will continue. Uh, some of them seem to object to traditional schooling. So um, people who hail from Sorry, Emma. extremely, that's all right. So I was just saying people who hail from extremely privileged educational backgrounds themselves. And many of these people are academics, you know, professors in universities, and they will start questioning the provision of that traditional curriculum for indeed, children. Indeed. Saying, oh, well, and they don't need it. I mean, one of the one of the you know one of my favorite things I like to say uh, to to new recruits is be very cautious about taking advice about managing challenging classrooms from someone who's never managed a challenging classroom or indeed couldn't manage a challenging classroom. And sadly, you'll get this in your own schools. You'll get people who've got very very high status and very very light timetable, who you know <laughs> who teach one A level class a week or something, you know, or do one class of of history to the to the P threes a week. You know, and and then the, and then they'll walk around telling everyone else, you know, how to manage the the roughest toughest classes that they themselves have never experienced. I mean, sadly, I don't know if it's sad there or not, but it's very, you know you can get into senior leadership with having with, without necessarily having the chops to handle a very challenging class. And I'm not knocking people who still struggle at SLT, incidentally, because if you're struggling at SLT level and you you find it hard to manage classrooms, I've got nothing but sympathy for you. Um, because it's, it's super hard for you because nobody's shown you how to do it. Plus, you've got all this responsibility of not looking stupid. Mm. It's so hard being a leader in that situation to actually say, you know what, I struggle with this stuff. Yeah. And, I, and again, I salute the people who've got the, the, the humility to, to say, actually, I do struggle with this. Um, but, but, but that person shouldn't then be saying, right, and here's how you do it. Yeah, in, the same way, in the same way that I, who can barely build a Lego Spider-Man, you know, I do not walk around telling people how to build a fourth road bridge. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, I do, I've got more humility than that. Yeah. And I think it's important that we acknowledge this. And I think that same thing that you've talked about, I think it's not just people who enter SLT, which I have not, I'm, just, I'm a classroom teacher. But yeah. I've been teaching more than 20 years. And I'm very firm now. If I have had a, pro so I, uh, last year I had a, an awful cover class. I mean, awful. And I wrote chapter and verse what happened and sent it to the deputy head because yeah. I thought it was real. I said, most people won't tell you this because they're ashamed. Whereas, you know, I, it's really important for you to know I'm an experienced teacher. I went in, I was organized, I set up, I did, every, I felt I'd done everything to, to, to make it work and it, and it didn't. And I was calling patrol right, left and center and, and, and genuinely really struggled with it. And, and yeah. it's part of me saying, think we've got you know uh, we've got some things that we need to address and it's that a, a lot of people will hide it they, they they're, they're dishonest about what's going on behind their classroom door because yeah. they're embarrassed yeah no absolutely and i think that i mean I, as i said in my book you know I, I i didn't tell anyone for years i was struggling with behavior mm. i mean i did but but you know nobody I, I didn't get very good advice um and eventually i stopped because every time i did i was made to feel like I was inadequate. I was a bad teacher rather than a learning teacher. And again, behavior for a teacher, you know, how a teacher behaves is also a curriculum. If the teacher hasn't been shown how to manage behavior, then, you know, then they need to be shown how to do it. We can't just pluck it from the, from the, the back of our heads. We, you know, we ourselves are not born with this type of knowledge either. Managing the behavior of other people is an incredibly complex skill. I mean, we can barely manage our own behavior. 
<laughs> let, alone, <laughs> let alone the behavior of strangers. So, yeah, and, you know, and in fact, one of the talk. things you say, of course, is how complex it is to manage a whole group. That it's not, you said, it's not all about relationships because yeah. you can't build a relationship with a whole group or, or indeed, in, if you're a secondary teacher, lots of different groups. You can have relationships with individuals, but but not a group. That's a different skill, isn't it? Oh, you sound like Margaret Thatcher there. There's no such thing as society. Oh, I that's not what I said. No, no. <laughs> I'm only kidding. Right. Um, <laughs> or am I? But um, I think, listen, the, the, there's a very famous thing said about relationships that, you know, that the, the, the behavior is all about a relationship with a child. And it is and it isn't. And it is. It definitely is. I mean, you know, you're ultimately aiming for a relationship. But the relationship is the outcome of the process, not the process itself. And I think sometimes teachers, because they often get given this really woolly advice, oh, focus on our relationship. People think, uh, okay, well, what does that mean? What do, what, what do I do? So they end up, um, so they end up, you know, trying to get the kids liking them or something like that, you know, or amusing them or giving them or giving them work that's relevant to their context or something, you know, cue endless, you know, cringy rap battles and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> You know, this assumption that all kids like rap, it just does my head. Anyway, moving to the <laughs> You know, what about the country and Western advocates? Anyway, um, the smooth soul and the, dis and the disco kids. Anyway, the, um, but, so that's the problem with thinking about behavior as, a, as, a, as, as, as solely relationship forming uh, or focusing too directly or squarely on relationships. But the problem, with, another problem with that is that it's kind of saying that kids don't need to behave for you if you don't have a relationship with you. Which means that if you're a supply teacher or a new teacher or an unfamiliar teacher or an NQT or something like that, you're kind of saying, ah, well, you know, it, uh, the, the kids didn't, didn't behave, but, but that's because you're new. I mean, maybe that's part of the reason, but the, the kids should still behave. Or to put it another way, the child needs to be taught that they have to have a relationship with the institution of the school, with the community, with the village that is the school. And that they've got a relationship with the school. And that no matter who comes in the class, whether it's a supply teacher or whoever, that they need to be polite and respectful and kind and do their best. Absolutely. And that, and that you know, a new face isn't an excuse to say, well, I have no relationship with you. Ha <laughs> get stuck. I'm yeah. now going to set fire to the curtains. Yes. You know, you're, again, you're, what, what liberal person who wants to, to show children the right path in their life would ever think that? It, it's, it's nonsensical when you actually absolutely. think like that, isn't it? That, that we're saying it's okay to behave like this towards somebody you don't know. Absolutely. Emma, listen, you know, it's breaking my heart here, but... I'm afraid I'm about to turn into a pumpkin. That can is you, completely fine. I know you, you said you would, you would give me 40 minutes and you have done exactly that. And well, I, so I gave you 41 because my children interrupted <laughs> me for 35 seconds. And I thought that was only fair. Otherwise, you might you might sue me under the Food Descriptions Act. Anyway, it's, it's lovely to speak to you. And, you know, I can talk about behaviour all day. Uh, this was the only this was the only time I could fit in, so I do apologise. But I'm really, really, um, it's really nice to talk to you. And thank you to anyone that was listening, all three of you. Hello, Noreen. Um, and and I, and I hope you had a, a nice time enjoying it, and you didn't get too upset or angry. And if oh. not, then and if not, then you know it's probably a form of communication. So just let me know what you really mean. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom. Thank See you. Again. Take care. Bye -bye. See you bye. bye. Oh well, I'm so lucky to have caught up with Tom. As as he mentioned, uh, moving house. I I would like to say he suggested the date. That's all. I've basically said any Saturday for the rest of my life. And uh, yeah, he came up with this one. So there we go. But he's a busy man. Um, so I'm going to take us uh, to the news uh, so, and then the ads. And then I will be back with you very shortly. 
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Following the latest government restrictions to reduce the spread of the new COVID variant, University and College Union is advising that it would be sensible to move university lessons online. The temporary measure would see online lessons return for the final week of term. The union is calling for the move to protect students ahead of Christmas after the Department for Education told universities to remain open for face-to-face teaching as planned. Some individual universities, including Imperial College London, have already made the move following rapid rises in cases on campus. The union is also calling for risk assessments to be conducted before students and staff return after the festive period. Schools must not lose sight of their core purpose amidst new demands for vaccinating pupils, testing children for COVID and dealing with anti-vax protesters, says Ofsted's Regional Director for London. According to a report in the Evening Standard, Mike Sheraton said that schools exist to educate children and to keep them safe, but acknowledged that school leaders are being pulled from pillar to post with new expectations. His comments come after the watchdog announced that Ofsted inspectors would not visit schools in the last week of term, unless there were safeguarding concerns. In Scotland, the Daily Record reports Nicola Sturgeon's comments that she will bust a gut to keep schools open after also suggesting that there will be a tsunami of infections due to the latest variant. Whilst the First Minister acknowledged that there would be disruptions to schools due to infections, she indicated that there would be no return to the countrywide closures seen at the start of the pandemic. This week, leaders from Eastern and Southern Africa recommitted to the education, health and well-being of adolescents and young people. As part of the International Conference on AIDS and Sexually Transmitted Infections, Ministers of Health and Education from 20 countries across the region agreed to renew their commitments first made in 2013. The drive will continue to focus on creating and implementing a more systematic scale-up of sex education, including a focus on reducing early and unintended pregnancy, gender-based violence and health and well-being. Deputy Minister of Basic Education in South Africa stated, Our young people are our hope for the development of our continent. And Zanzibar Minister for Education said it was important to create a land where our adolescents and young people are healthier, more productive and contribute to a more inclusive society. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. Hello, I'm back. I lied. I'm not going to do the ads now because I nearly forgot um, my regular feature. Um, And I can't believe I nearly forgot it because it's a spectacularly great one uh, this week. Um, So my regular feature, Teachers Confess. Uh, Do remember if you have something you'd like to get off your chest, something you said, did or forgot, we will have them and they can haunt us forever. But if you feel you'd be uh, you'd uh, be better to bear your soul to the nation, then this is absolutely the place to do it. My DMs are open on Twitter, so you can contact me on there. Now, today's confession is from an English teacher who I will call Jane. I was teaching a year nine class in my previous school a London grammar school housed in an old-style Victorian building. As a result of the architecture, most of the windows were those old-style sash windows 
the sort that opened wide when you pushed them upwards and that wouldn't be allowed in these days of health and safety. But back in the 90s, it was perfectly okay to have your sash windows wide open in the blazing summer heat. During the lesson, some pigeons, a ubiquitous feature of the environment, as any Londoner will tell you, had settled on the windowsill and were causing some wild distraction. I moved towards the window and tried to shoo them away, but as any Londoner will also tell you, pigeons are quite cocky. They flapped a bit, some withdrew briefly, but quickly they returned to the windowsill, cooing, pecking, and generally drawing attention away from my scintillating exposition on Macbeth. Irritated, I decided that the only thing to do was to close the sash window, and I did so with considerable force, just as a pigeon stuck its head across the threshold to reach for an imaginary crumb. The result was the pigeon's head remained on our side of the window and the rest of the pigeon on the other. I need not go into the reaction this sparked from the year nine students who have probably never forgotten that particular class. Neither have I. <laughs> so thank you, Jane, for that incredible confession. Um, I don't know what to say really. Uh, headless pigeon in year nine classroom. Um, I can only imagine what you had to deal with after that. Oh my goodness. Um, and you are forgiven uh, because you knew not what you did. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Welcome back and thank you for staying with me on Teachers Talk Radio. You are listening live. Well, I'm so privileged to have had um, a little bit of Tom's time earlier and it was fascinating to hear him talk off the cuff about some of the things that I've um, obviously listened to him speak about before and that I've read in his book. And it certainly... I've been thinking about this a lot over the last year or so and doing a lot of reading. And I think what seems strange and puzzling to me increasingly is the extent to which in teaching, there is a tension between the notion of pastoral care and the idea of discipline and the curriculum. And I think Tom spoke beautifully about his belief that behavior is or should be a curriculum that that children need to be taught how to behave and the very fact that that is controversial I think shows just what a strange position we have ended up in as a society the idea that that 
that behaviour needs to be taught. The very fact that that's a, a, up for debate is is really quite extraordinary. Um, I think it, I find it very puzzling that some people struggle to understand that authority can be loving. I, I in my in my conversation with Tom, I said that I think people confuse authority and authoritarianism. And I, I really believe that. I think people are frightened of authority because they're frightened of authoritarianism. And I think we really do need to separate those two ideas in our minds. I think that's essential if we care about young people. And as I mentioned to Tom, I've changed my mind about a lot of things in the last few years. Uh, and that is partly making a shift in my own career from the sort of environment that he was was talking about, actually, the um, the leafy uh, liberal school where you are blessed with an intake that generally, obviously not always, but generally know how to behave and generally have a positive spin on education. So they walk they walk in through the doors um wanting to be there and not least because the grammar school i worked in was massively oversubscribed i mean it was oversubscribed sort of 12 or 13 to 1 it was so difficult to get into and so of course they walked through those doors with an immense sense of personal pride and privilege lots of trepidation as well and i would say that actually what the school struggled with most and I believe from colleagues who are still there still struggles with most is children's anxieties and um, living up to expectations and a lot of parents threw a lot of money at tutoring to get their child into that school and then immediately withdrawal of that support because they got in um, and I think that those struggles were all very real but what we didn't struggle with was children who didn't want to be in school children who didn't see an innate value to education. They would kick against it occasionally, of course they would, they're still young people, but fundamentally, deep down in their in their marrow, they they knew that they were in the right place and they were happy to be there. And I think it's moving out of that environment and then reading about people who teach in very challenging environments that has really made me rethink a lot of things. Because as I say, the idea of, oh, just, you know, give them quite a free reign works pretty well in that environment, um, but, but not in others. So teaching at a school like that felt more like, I don't know, sort of a, you had to provide a, a gentle guiding hand for students that were already basically fast tracked for success. They, they arrived on our threshold with aspirations for themselves and and at least a sense of self-belief they got in i mean just that in itself was was an achievement the sense that their parents had high expectations for them that believed in them that wanted them to go to university and yes as i say with that comes a psychological burden but they were fast tracked to success and that's exactly what the vast majority of them did succeed um, it, it really wasn't difficult to teach in a school like that. And behaviour, generally speaking, wasn't a problem. 
When it was, however, actually you felt pretty abandoned because what was also interesting is the belief in the school was because of the intake that we had and the sorts of students that we had and the background they came from that we didn't need a patrol. We didn't need a system like that. So I taught for the first nine or 10 years of my career with no system of, for example, having a student removed from the class. So if you had a class that wasn't being as cooperative as you needed them to be, or a particular individual that wasn't, it was actually quite a lonely experience. Uh, and of course, again, because the environment we were in, if you then asked for help, the view was, what, why are you struggling behavior? Like, you know, that's, that's your, that's definitely your fault. So in many ways, I was glad to move out of that environment and, and into an environment where there was a great deal more support. No systems definitely can mean failure. Uh, and there were there was the odd moment where I felt challenged by a young person and actually wasn't able to do anything about it and, and certainly didn't know what to do about it. Now, one of the other things that I talked uh, to Tom about was how tiring it is to not let things go. I mean, the drip, drip, drip of resistance God, it, dry, it grinds you down, doesn't it? So the, the exhausting process of trying to get young people to do what they're supposed to do. <laughs> and it can be very exhausting and it can be particularly exhausting if you haven't agreed as a school, this is how we're going to do it. This is what we're all going to do. Um, it, that is when it can be particularly difficult. And I think one of the toughest things that we all are expected to do in a school are duties. So it's 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 how young people behave around you when you're moving around the school, um, inside or outside uh, on a duty. And if your school hasn't ironed out absolutely every single tiny detail for what to do, when to do it, what to expect, how to expect it, how to model it, that's when it's tricky because I think it's very easy. Well, no, that's not true. It's much easier to craft a tight environment in your own classroom. And I've certainly got to the point where I feel I've got that 95% nailed. Um, that doesn't mean um, students don't have their moments, but um, I control that environment. As Tom puts it in his book, my room, my rules. Uh, and, and I feel very much I am in control when they cross that threshold. However, when I'm out and about around the school, I, I feel that less. And that's when it's hugely important that you have the backing of your senior leadership team uh, and, and other colleagues. So an experience I had last year, um, I was outside on a duty and... <laughs> Um, I was on the sort of on it, this is when we we're all in bubbles, of course. Um, so the, the students were grouped in particular areas of the school, depending on what year group they were in, because they were all in bubbles. And I was sort of on the edge, I was doing a duty in the year eight area, which buffered the year 11 area. And I was standing there, you know, looking around like you do. And one of the year 11 boys just sort of came roaring up to me you know running and sort of basically yelled in my face as a joke you know nothing particularly 
frightening, but just silly behaviour and a bit made me jump. And then off and off he roars again. So I thought, oh, okay. So I wander over very calmly to where he'd ended up with several of his friends and said, you know, what was that about? Um, and really all that needed to happen and all that should have happened is him to go, oh yeah, you know, sorry miss, and you know, we can have a conversation about that. I could maybe issue a sanction if I felt that was appropriate, if it, you know, which I think I would have done. It really made me, made me jump at silly behaviour. And he'd apologised. Behaviour point wouldn't have given it another thought. But what ended up happening, and I think it's one of those things that I like to talk to my form about a lot, I think it's really important to talk to young people about it, is, is a group dynamic. And I was quickly surrounded by... I would say six or eight year 11 boys. And as I mentioned last week, I'm extremely small. So I'm, I'm barely five feet tall. These were all big lads, you know, all of them taller than me, you know, and let's face it, year 11 boys are largely little boys inhabiting men's bodies and physically they're pretty intimidating. So they were all sort of staying around, you know, chipping, shoving each other, questioning me saying oh what, what's go what's your problem um i think one of them at one point said you came over here sort of implying well you entered our territory uh, which i thought was very significant so i tried to talk to them about it at times tried to say boys um we we need to think about what's going on here you know there's a large number of you i'm on my own I'm much smaller than you. You need to think about how you're coming across, how it might be making me feel. Yeah, I tried all of that. And uh, they continued to sort of jostle, laugh, push, shove, generally behave in a way that actually is quite intimidating. Anyway, bell goes, you know, and of course, this is how teaching is. I'm teaching next. You know, I, I, I don't have... Um, endless time to then go off and and uh, speak to a member of senior leadership and you know this is the reality off you go to your next lesson but as i talked about last week the ipad of power with class charts on it so off i go to my next class get them into the class doing the do now in silence but ipad looking up those year 11 boys i knew one of their names so i found him scanned through a few thought i recognized two or three others but it's always quite difficult isn't it to so that's when i emailed patrol said right these boys i want them picked up i want them to write a statement i want them to be asked who else was in the group and i want this dealt with i want to meet with them i'm not having this and i got incredible support from uh senior leadership they were fantastic so long story short, these boys were rounded up uh, and as soon as was uh, sensibly possible, I met with them with two male members of staff, one a senior leader uh, and one their head of year. And I think that was really important. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't just me needing male members of staff for, for backup, although I must admit um, that was nice. It's really important for those male members of staff to hear me explain to the boys again how their behaviour came across. And 
I openly said to them, I didn't feel afraid of you because we're on a school campus, I'm a teacher, and I knew that there, however poorly you were behaving, you, you knew there was an invisible line that I knew you weren't going to cross. But I made the point to them that if they had behaved like that towards me and we had been out of the school environment, I had simply been a woman on my own out and about and they had been a bunch of lads I didn't know, I would have been afraid of them. And I think it's that being very frank with young people about how they can come across as a group. You know, and I, I talk to my form a lot about this, my former in year 10, really trying to get across them. It's almost like they don't know how big they are yet. It's like they're, they're not used to the hands and feet and what they're doing with them. And I don't, I genuinely don't think they fully understand how intimidating they can be as a group. I think some of them do. And some of them enjoy intimidating people. But I think then as part of a group, maybe they're just not thinking, or at least I like to tell myself that. Um, what was very interesting is that uh, several members of the group immediately engaged with it and realised that they had messed up badly. But what was very interesting was that they were generally the ones who had remained very quiet. Um, the ringleaders were the, the toughest to crack. And again, that's significant. So I think, um, and one in particular, I wonder if, if if it had any impact on him at all. Yeah, so hugely important when um, teachers are asked to do duties that they get support from senior leadership when they ask for it. And as I was talking to Tom about earlier, that teachers tell them this stuff because one of the things that does worry me is how many things in schools are let go for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's because we're too busy and frankly too tired. It's, it's easier to let it go. So when that kid came roaring up and yelled in my face, I could have just let it go. As it is, and some of my training would tell me, I escalated the situation. So my early training was all about tactical ignoring. So you would let these these um, minor infringements go um, as a, a as a de-escalation um, process. Whereas, of course, that's just utter nonsense because then what you're doing by ignoring that kind of behaviour is is condoning it. What you permit, you promote. You you normalise that and say, oh, that's okay. It's all completely all right to come up to roaring up to somebody and shout in their face. When you're 16, I mean, you know, a four-year-old doing that is one thing, but you know, uh, this is this kind of behaviour is not okay, and it's really important to challenge it, and it's really important to be honest about the fact when that challenge didn't go well, and that you're not satisfied uh, with the response that you got from those students. It's really important to be open with your leaders about that. Say, no, 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 no. I was spoken to. I felt intimidated, and I and I won't have it. And it's, it's hugely important to share these things, um, but it can be easy not to. Because one of the things I, I asked Tom about was in the early days, he mentions in his book that the, the system sort of taught him to give up, uh, to have low expectations. Um, and I think I re that really resonated with me because I remember being specifically told in my teacher training that, that you should, as they said, tactically ignore. You should 
let things go. And you think, I look back on that now and I feel genuinely furious about it because not only did that hold me back in my career, so I think back to the number of times I followed that advice because you you accept what you're taught on teacher training as, as being, well, this is how it should be done and they must know what they're talking about. But it was the wrong advice. It was the wrong advice for me as a teacher. But perhaps even more importantly, it's the wrong advice for the students. Because by, in inverted commas, tactically ignoring um, what is also, in scare quotes, low-level disruption, by ignoring these things, we're condoning them. We're saying it's okay. We're letting it, we're letting it go. So all of those repeated, endless, small actions taken by students that we let go, it's constantly giving them the subliminal message that the rules don't really matter. And I think that's also, so another thing I've massively changed my mind on is the importance of uniform um, and how they wear it, more importantly. I don't think particularly necessarily matters what the uniform is, or if you don't have one, what the dress code is whatever um but i think either you just say okay we've got no rules and we just you can wear whatever you like and 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 that and that is to the full degree i i think that would be a bad idea by the way uh but if you are going to have a uniform and some rules then you must enforce them to the letter not because it matters because frankly it doesn't i mean uh, i heard catherine burble sing the other day Head, head of Michaela say do I really care whether their ties are done up to the no I don't I don't really care but if I let that go then what I'm saying is my rules don't matter and that's the point and this is why I've changed my mind I think the previous I thought well it doesn't matter whether their shirt's tucked in or not it doesn't you know it doesn't affect their learning it's got no it doesn't matter no it doesn't however what does matter is the messaging so if you're going to have a rule which is your ties are done up your shirt is tucked in all the rest of it it must be enforced otherwise how are they supposed to take it seriously when you try to enforce a rule that you think does matter for example that they don't talk over you in class so it's important for that reason it's also important of course because it's part of training for life many jobs, many careers, top professions will involve wearing a uniform with pride. And that that goes from top to bottom, whether you're flipping burgers or flying Concorde. You know, you will be expected to wear a uniform and wear it correctly and wear it with pride. And if we are, at least part of our job is to prepare young people for their working life that's important too you can also apply it to other environments what it is and isn't appropriate to turn up to a date wearing or to somebody's party wearing you know or a funeral you know all of these things there are there are there are expectations of these young people that they will be facing later in their lives and we are letting them down badly if we don't prepare them for it.
So I've really changed my mind about a lot of things. And I've been pondering recently um, what very traditional schools, I mean old schools, back in the day schools, what they used to do that some of the best schools do now or that would be worth keeping in, in the general system. And I've been asking you know, people my age, for example, who went to a traditional school, my husband went to a grammar school, um, you know, what, what, were, what were the rules? So my school, <laughs> I only realised and remembered when there was a huge fuss about this uh, on Twitter, had silent corridors. And I, and I had completely forgotten. I had completely forgotten that we weren't allowed to talk when we were moving between lessons. Totally forgotten, just literally, you know, hadn't recalled it whatsoever. And it was only when um, people started uh, all the hysterics about uh, Michaela and similar schools and how oppressive it was to uh, ask children to move about school without talking. Um, I remembered, I thought, well, yeah, we weren't, we weren't allowed to talk in, in the corridors. But it, it was such a non-big deal that I had completely forgotten about it. Um, was it necessary in the school that I was in? Possibly not. But I wonder if uh, actually it, may, it made a huge difference that I wasn't aware of because it's just what we were used to. Presumably that meant that starts and ends of lessons, at least, had to be quiet. Um, and you arrived pretty calmly. And I do remember there were a lot of staff in corridors. So looking back now as a professional, I realise, yeah, they must have had a policy that said, you know, teachers need to be in corridors, teachers need to be supervising. And that in itself, hmm, I think I'd go back to that. Um, yeah, interesting. Other things, so my husband recalls i i asked him i said did you have to have to stand up when the teacher walked in and he went oh yes you know as if, as if that was well it's a given because that's that was his experience of school and i said well that, that's really very rare now I, I don't personally know of anyone who works in a school <laughs> that insists on that again my school did i went to a very traditional private school um, and again, I found myself thinking, is that a good idea? I don't know. Genuine question. Is it a marker that marks the beginning of the lesson? Hmm. Possibly. Possibly. Personally, I'm not sure I would go with it because I think it's a bit of a disruption. And certainly in, in my school, the rule was you had to stand when any adult entered the room. And that actually, I think I'd find that a massive pain because in modern schools, there's Quite a lot of adults popping in and out of the room and I think it would be a little bit unrealistic to insist that your class stand up uh, every time because it would just disrupt what's going on um, but again these things are worth revisiting I think and it's worth asking yourself why did they do that what what did it achieve you know before we throw the baby out with the bathwater um, was was there a, a good reason for that and did it serve a purpose and certainly, having uh, revisited my old school, I went back a few years ago to give a talk, a um, couple of times, 
my goodness me, um, <laughs> it's quite different, put it that way. Um, pretty chaotic is how I would describe it now. And I found it quite difficult as a professional not to intervene. It really wasn't my role because I wasn't going there as a teacher. I was actually going there as an author uh, to give a talk. And I was this close to uh, intervening, particularly with a year eight group who, when we arrived, were in the classroom ahead of us. Big shock for me. I was appalled. They were sitting on desks. Ah! I nearly had a nervous breakdown. It just goes against all my sensibilities uh, to have students in the classroom before me. That makes me terribly anxious. As for them sitting on desks, well, I was practically hyperventilating. Um, yeah, certainly uh, wouldn't have happened when I was there in the 80s, put it that way. So that really got me thinking, goodness, I wonder when they when they changed, when they let go of some things and did they find that once they let go of one thing, did everything else fall apart? Fascinating to wonder, isn't it? How you shift, how a school shifts from extreme discipline, which is certainly how it was when I was there, to what I would call um, <laughs> pandemonium. Yeah, so it's been an absolute pleasure, as always. Um, I would like to say again, a massive, massive thank you uh, to Tom for giving me his time earlier today, especially as he was in the middle of, of moving house and, you know, finding pheasants in the garden and goodness knows what else was, was going on at the same time. Um, so hugely grateful to Tom and who knows, hope to chat to him again sometime. Uh, later on, uh, on Teachers Talk Radio, we've got Joseph Hammond. Uh, he'll be here at one o'clock and I believe he's got a wide range of guests uh, and they're going to be talking about gaming something I know close to zero about, um, but uh, that is the topic, apparently. As for me, I'll be here at the same time next week, of course, and in that show, I'll be looking at every teacher's potential side hustle, private tutoring. So do join me on December the 18th, which will be my last show uh, before the Christmas break. For now, Look after yourselves and have a great weekend. One more week to go, comrades. You can almost smell the holiday. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.